There is no error with your audio outputs. Do not attempt to fix any sound issues. We are monitoring you with this device. We control your options and settings. We are transmitting through your internet connection, but our signal is actually entering your mind, sending electrical impulses into the very tissues of your brain. Try to stay calm. We've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Hello, and welcome to the first ever uh, episode of the Paranoia Podcast. Um, I am Olaf Phillips. I'm the publisher of Paranoia Magazine. On the line, I have uh, Ron Patton. Ron is our editor-in-chief. Ron? Hey, thanks for having me aboard, Olaf Phillips. Well, certainly, Ron Patton. So this is our first episode. So uh, we thought that we'd kind of run through what we hope to achieve by doing this podcast. It's a little boring, but at least you guys will get an idea. And then we had a kind of topic we were going to cover. So the way we normally want to approach this podcast is that we want to talk about a subject and really kind of get into it and kind of educate people as to the the true nature of these conspiracies. Because what both Ron and I have found over time is that a lot of people are very interested in conspiracies um, of all kinds, but they don't know the details or there's an important kind of a foundational conspiracy like the John F. Kennedy thing where they don't know much about it. So Ron and I thought it would be interesting and fun to do a podcast for Paranoia and to kind of get into some of those conspiracies and uh, discuss them. And, and because many times Ron and I have different opinions, um, but we can kind of get into it. And then, you know, you, the listener out there, will kind of have a better idea of that conspiracy. So I guess we'll cut cut to the chase. Uh, this is a no bullshit kind of operation. Wow, you can swear too, huh? You can. It's not rest. It's not terrestrial radio, Ron. So there's no FCC. Oh, wow. We, hey, we should put this on pirate radio. We should put this on pirate radio. If I had a pirate radio station, I would. Yeah, but then you'd have to change your name and you know your location and all that. So. <laughs> and speaking of locations, I am broadcasting from the conspiracy <laughs> cabana, and Ron is broadcasting from the uh, the paranoia bunker. Uh, yes. Buried- Deep, deep, deep within uh, under under uh, Portland there. At least 60 feet. <laughs> at least 60 feet. Yeah, yeah, you'll survive a lot at 60 feet. <laughs> well, you know. Sure. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of underground tunnels here in Portland, you know, that were actually made about, a, I guess, over 100 years ago. So there's a lot of conspiracies around the Portland, sort of the underground tunnels of Portland. I guess they used them for uh, kidnapping women and taking them to China. So, Well, they used to kidnap people and, and sh- quote-unquote, Shanghai them and force some work on ships, too. Yeah. You know, in, in San Francisco, uh, supposedly, um, we have a bunch of tunnels that are mm-hmm. uh, buried deep under the city. Um, 
that have uh, maybe seven foot long rats, and supposedly the triads use them for running drugs and other stuff. But it's supposedly the whole thing has a catacomb of tunnels under underneath it. Yeah, that'd be uh, interesting if you could like actually investigate some of those tunnel systems. You know, you have you have those type of tunnels, and then you have the uh, government kind of tunnels. There was a book actually written back in the early 90s by Dr. Richard Sauter, and it had to do with uh, how the government was uh, building all these underground bunkers and tunnels. and uh, Nuclear-powered I mean, po- nuclear bore machines, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy stuff. But, you know, earlier you were talking about <clears throat> conspiracies and sort of the uh, dynamics of conspiracies. And, you know, I just wanted to touch upon that. I think it's really important that people understand the foundation of a conspiracy. And so basically what we're trying to do is kind of set the framework or, you know, putting together a frame of reference for people to understand what a conspiracy is. And, you know, basically the definition of a conspiracy in a nutshell is it's a secret plan by a group, you know, two or more people to, uh, do something harmful or unlawful. And uh, I've always been telling people for years that, you know, conspiracy permeates every part of society. So that can include families. That can include religion. Uh, We definitely know it happens in politics and in business. So it's something that we really can't get away from Yet, it's sort of, sort of this nebulous, mystical term that I think most people think of when they hear the word conspiracy. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. totally. And one of the one things of the that things I, I found is that, that as a con- somebody who's interested in conspiracies, uh, when I go to the bookstore, because I'm a human being, surprisingly, when I go to the bookstore and I, I look for conspiracy books, a lot of times uh, conspiracy books are actually kind of bunched in with the um, with metaphysical and New Age books. Yeah. And that's actually not true. It, it should more be in the politics arena mm-hmm. or in history because a conspiracy as an entity exists in history. It exists in politics. It, it exists in crime. It exists in all facets of life. But it, it should also be pointed out that one of the other important things about conspiracies is that the way we find out about them. Now, a lot of right. times we find out about them because a whistleblower, they're called whistleblowers, right? a whistleblower will come out and say, hey, I know about this conspiracy. I'd like to share the fun. And the reason that is is because a lot of – because people inherently have trouble keeping secrets. Now, we we have a security state and we have many security states, in fact, where people – uh, are given security clearances and told secret things that are not supposed to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do, as an individual, I do believe that some secrets are meant to be kept. Right. Um, you know, around national defense and, and things like that. But sometimes these people become angry. They didn't get the raise they wanted. They didn't get the job they wanted. They're having a bad time at home or whatever. And they decide to, to share the fun with everybody else and, and, cut loose and like Edward Snowden, tell everybody or the Mm -hmm. Panama papers, tell everybody what's going on. And, and I, I once had a very wise man tell me 
that the only that normally to have a conspiracy it takes two or more people right that you have to have the origin the source and somebody he shares he or she shares it with right but typically a conspiracy has two or more and the more could be in the thousands or the millions of people you know you can look at conspiracies that were actually mass population you know um spanning conspiracies mm-hmm. but he he once told me he said the only way that you can actually keep a conspiracy quiet or keep a secret is if you take that two and reduce it down to one so he, his his assessment was if you wanted to keep a secret you got to kill the other guy and that that does happen um and we can get into that as over the course of this podcast but uh i think that um one of the other important facets about this whole thing is is that you kind of understand who we are and how we came into this because a lot of people ask me well how did you get into conspiracies mm-hmm. so i would like to pose the question to mr ron Patton, conspiracy superstar ron how did you get into this oh i knew you were going to ask me that and actually That's a hell of a story i know i mean you know some people have heard me talk on other shows you know probably already know but for those who haven't uh, it actually started when I was seven. I had this epiphany, um, and I just I just kind of came to the realiz- realization that the world was phony, or the reality that I was in was phony. It uh, because I'd be watching the news, you know, and uh, I'd be talking about the Vietnam War and all these riots all over the place, and I just thought. Why can't people just get along? I mean, that makes sense, right? Sort if you're of. nice to people and if you love one another, then good things happen. But when you're mean to people and you kill people and you lie and you know have all this deceit, then that just brings people down. So I guess I was just, uh, believe it or not, I was doing a lot of soul searching at the age of seven because I was, I was pretty sensitive. I was very introspective. And the world just didn't make sense to me. But I, I guess I came to the realization that there must be like a spiritual variable within the equation of life. Later on, I was able to articulate that. There was something else. And so, I mean, personally, I still think there's, there's a spiritual dynamic that's taking place. I don't know exactly what it is per se. I, I think I have a pretty good idea. But at the same time, that's what made sense to me. And, you know, what it really comes down to is we, we develop our perspective through our perception, right? Sure. And so our perception is developed how? Through uh, our environment, right? How we're raised, whether we're religious or not, or, you know. So that, that's really what it came down to. And uh, as the years passed and... Uh, um, I got a little bit older. I um, hooked up with this uh, one ministry that uh, my church was a part of, and it was called Love of God Ministries. And the guy that headed it up was uh, Norman Shear. And this was like back in the 80s. And he always said, Ronnie, get ready, man. You know, after the year 2000, you're, you're just going to go, it's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. Well, Ron, you know, the first problem that I hear in this story is he called you Ronnie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he calls you Ronnie. Dude, watch out. 
Well, I mean, you know, he was just, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird, but... <laughs> kind of weird? Hey, well, Ron, no, actually... Hey, Ronnie, after hey, the year hey, 2000, hey, No, all, no, okay, so this down. was the deal. When I was young, they used to call me Ronnie. When I went to private school, I was called Ronald. And then, like, once I got out of private school, then I was Ron. But, you know, sometimes, you know, it's sort of just an endearing way to say Ron, right? I still think it's trouble, man. I know, I know. So, <laughs> anyway, Norman, Norman was a pretty cool guy he was like he was like a messianic jew and he had this uh ministry called love god ministries and he was like exposing like the new age movement and the new world order and all this stuff and it just like blew me away and so he would bring in all these uh speakers you know from across the country into hawaii and i was just sort of like enthralled i'm just going man is this really going to come about and so uh you know few years passed you know i w- wasn't really that much into it but it definitely something that sparked my interest and then uh then around 1991 92 i heard this one guy speak at a church who said that he w- grew up in this uh, satanic family yet his uh, parents were churchgoers and i'm going what that doesn't make sense you know but basically what he was saying is that his dad was in the CIA, and as a cover, they were this good church-going family, but, you know, behind the scenes, they were into, like, Luciferian rituals, and, you know, he was, this guy was under government CIA mind control, and he was talking about monarch programming and how they were creating multiple personality disorder in these children and actually killing some children and it was just so mind-blowing. I'm going, oh, come on. And actually, at that point, I was pretty skeptical about a lot of conspiracy-type stuff. And I think it was just because it was just so overwhelming. I, again, I had, like, uh, I was very curious. But at the same time, I had nothing to back it up, right? And so then I became a, a skeptic. And then got to the point of, you know, what's called cognitive dissonance. And I think that's very important when you start examining conspiracies and why people don't want to believe in conspiracies is because they suffer from cognitive dissonance, which is essentially setting up a denial system, right? When, when something comes against your beliefs or your ideologies and there's something like deep down inside that says, you know what? This person could be right. <laughs> but still, you have this built-up wall. So you set up this denial system. And that's what I was doing at the time. But as I started looking into this like CIA mind control stuff that was going on, I realized that it was real. And then I had to ask myself, well, now that I know about it, what am I going to do with it? So that was, I think that was the real, uh, I guess, spark or impetus back in the early 90s that really uh, got me interested in not just researching conspiracies, but it's like, okay, now that I know about these things, how am I going to disseminate it? You know, it's it's interesting that it, it happened to you during the 90s, like you really came into it uh-huh. in the 90s, because the 90s were an interesting time that, you know, you're coming out of the 80s, you know, and in in the early 80s, there was this kind of notion of, we can all get rich, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, champagne wishes and caviar dreams and, you know, everybody would tune in and, 
you know, the American dream wasn't just to have a house or have 2.5 kids, a good job, whatever. It was more like the American dream was to have a Ferrari. You know, everybody wanted to be Don Johnson on, on uh, Miami Vice minus right. the drugs, in some cases with the drugs. But, you know, there there was a back kind of a backlash in the 90s. And, you know, a lot of a lot of really kind of interesting stuff came out during that period. You know, that was the whole rise of Illuminate Press and Jim Keith. And, you know, a lot of these people were coming out during that time and talking about the black helicopters. And oh, yeah. And CTRL, Conspiracy Theory Research List right. by Chris Milligan. Yeah. Well, and, and research labs, you know, they were looking into taboo stuff and conspiracies. And, you know, the BBS thing was rising. A lot of conspiracy literature was being disseminated over the bbs's you know the anarchist cookbook and you know a lot of these these kinds of early um kind of early adoption into the modern conspiracy movement so it's interesting that that it's really in that zone that you really kind of came into it yeah well um and i've met a lot of very interesting people um yeah you have along the way (laughs) And, you know, I'm not going to name names right now, but I do have a book that I'm presently writing, and it's called, uh, tentatively titled, Swimming with Sharks, Treading the Murky Waters of Conspiracy Research. And, uh, you know, basically it's, uh, you know, talking about wolves in sheep's clothing, people who I thought were on the up and up and came to the realization that uh, they were kind of like, Pied Pipers, right? They they were putting out a lot of truth, and they would hide behind like Christianity or whatever to make themselves look really good. But the reality was they would hide behind that and and do some pretty awful things to other people. Uh, I really don't want to get into it in this show because <laughs> you know that like lately it, it always seems like things pop up where like all of a sudden. Oh, you better be careful of this guy, Ron Patton. He's a Jesuit spy, or you know, he's an Illuminati handler, or something like that. Or so. Like an MK Ultra programmer. Oh yeah, yeah. By the yeah. way, uh, for those of you who are uninitiated, MK Ultra was a CIA program to brainwash people and do yeah. mind control. But we'll get into that in detail in another episode. Yeah. So it's always it's always interesting when you're accused of something just because you simply. You know, like you get into a uh, uh, debate or an argument with somebody, and if they don't like that, all of a sudden you're like demonized, and they they'll spread all kinds of like slanderous stuff. I just have to laugh, and it's like I really want to get into it, but at the same time, it's like Ron, just let it go, let it go, man, go. And then eventually, you know, people come to the realization that a lot of these people that are saying this kind of garbage are. Are pretty whacked out, right? So well, yeah. I mean, I've been accused of being an Illuminati stooge. I mean, my my yeah. response to you know being accused of being an Illuminati stooge or or a government stooge is that hey, if I was a government stooge or Illuminati stooge, it really doesn't pay well. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had some money. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that you have to realize is that you know when you when you look at all these conspiracy books out there and you listen to people, you know, Ron and I are humans, human beings, and, you know, we're interested in stuff. And, 
you know, we listen to people speak and, and we buy books and, and go to lectures and stuff. But, you know, I'm always very, very leery of people who, who have like a hundred books and, you know, they're, they're, they're saying things that sound too good to be true. And because, you know, there, there is a kind of conspiracy industry, you know, there, there are very few people who, who do this kind of research, uh, one in particular that has a multimedia empire and, you know, they, they're making a lot of money at it. And, you know, I always have to step back and no matter who it is, I mean, me included, don't believe me, you know, I'm lying to you. That's what I always tell people, Mm -hmm. but you have to kind of look back and, and look at the motivations of the people that, that you're listening to, you know, what, why are they saying these things? What's their track record, you know, fact check it. Because the truth is, is that when you look at the the fact check level of some conspiracy researchers, some conspiracy all stars of which Ron and I are not either, um, you kind of find some interesting things. And and it's funny because you know you go to these lectures and and they speak with authority and and that kind of notion of speaking with authority. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that that you can kind of mind control somebody on a low level that you know without without the more sophisticated mind control systems and procedures because it's very scientific but on a very low level if i just walk into a room and i tell you i'm the man and and i know this stuff and i'm the boss and i'm assertive and aggressive you you have a tendency to believe me there was once a study i think it was done at at stanford where they they uh, brought in these people and they yeah. sat them they sat them down in front of a console and Every time the person answered wrong, there's a person in another room and they could hear him. Every time they answered wrong, they were supposed to shock him. Mm. Right? Right. And, and the guy who was giving them the instructions, he was wearing a lab coat. Nobody was ever told that the guy was a doctor or that, that the guy was an expert. He just simply had a lab coat on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, time after time on these studies that they, they people would keep buzzing them. And each time they would buzz them to electrify the the person in the other room. There was no person in another room. But every time they'd do it, the voltage would increase. And they were very aware of what the voltage was. And there was a, if I remember correctly, there was a marker where it said, like, lethal. And they would Uh keep hitting the button, hitting the button, hitting the button. And and they would reach a point where the, the dosage of electricity was supposedly lethal. Right. But they would keep hitting the button because some guy in a, in a, you know, you know, lab coat said, oh, don't worry about it. And the right. guy with the lab coat would come in and say, oh, they're answering wrong. You know, screw right. them. Go ahead and, you know, electrocute them. There's a person be like, yeah, but it's lethal. I'm at a lethal. I'm going to kill them. And the person in the lab coat would be like, ah, don't worry about them. They'll be fine. Right. And they, they keep doing it. You know, so there's yeah. this kind of authority complex that, right. that 99% of the population has. And Right. Well, that's why, you know, you know People are controlled much easier under a, uh, a rigid hierarchical structure. That's and, true. Uh, so especially within religion, right? You see that oh, yeah. all over the place. And, of course, in politics, too. And sometimes uh, I think so many people are used to just giving two choices, right? And, again, that's since we're in getting into this conspiracy stuff, uh, you can look at uh, Hegelian dialectics where, where people are kind of given a couple of choices, right? And uh, little do we realize that none of those choices may be valid, 
but wow. whether it's like Democrat, Republican, capitalism, communism, you know, anything that, you know, has to do with uh, uh, conflicting views or diametrical views, it's like, okay, it has to be either this or that. Yeah, it's always, or, bi- it's always binary. It's on or right. off. Zero right. or one. So that's that's very linear thinking, and a lot of that linear thinking, I think, is instilled through our education system, our religious system, and uh, you know, just uh, the way we're raised. You know, it's almost multi generational. It's almost inbred in our DNA. Well, it goes back to time immemorial. But you know, a lot of times people go, "Oh, you're crazy." I'd say, you know, you can see this stuff actually acted out in in real life. Mm-hmm. And people come back and they say, "Oh, you're nuts." You know, where where's the tinfoil hat? And I said, "Well, I don't wear a tinfoil hat. I wear a helmet, but the these things are there." And you can see it with Ben mm-hmm. Carson. You know, they he was a classic example of the Hegelian dialectic where you know, he he came out and people some of the population liked him and liked what he was saying and then he was exposed that he had lied about his interactions and, you know, with the whole going to West Point thing. Right. And then there's, there's a whole process that, that it, that they, the powers that be the, the quote unquote, they went through in the media to dismantle the guy. Mm -hmm. And basically nobody said anything. Everybody knew that he was lying. Right. And nobody said anything because he hadn't, it either wasn't the, I think in this case, it wasn't the right time. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, you know, it didn't hurt anybody yet. So nobody said anything. And finally, he got to a point where he was getting some traction. After a couple of the debates, he was starting to get some traction. And then <laughs> magically, it comes out that he was lying. And right. I mean, he wasn't just lying. He was lying big. Right. I mean, it was big lies. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole system called the Hegelian dialectic that they use to dismantle him and mm-hmm. to basically uh, terminate his his bid for the presidency. And in doing that, right, they they funneled all of his supporters into another candidate and boosted that candidate up because he said, well, I'm going down, but I, I'm telling everybody who agrees with me, go vote for that guy. And then suddenly that guy's numbers increase. And then wouldn't you know it, he, he's disgraced, in the you know, so to speak, and then he gets a good job at a pack. So, right. That's how these things work, right? Right. He was basically sacrificed to boost up another candidate, and then they gave him a, a very nice job uh, at a political action committee. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of conspiracies, hey, yes. have you ever noticed that, you know, there used to be a lot of soap operas on TV? Sure. But there's, there's not a lot of soap operas on anymore. You know That's, why? No. Because I think political debates are the soap operas. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, sure. when you think about it, sure. it's just like yeah, and, and everybody is so interested in watching them. And I've watched them a few times, but it's like, oh man, you just like want to throw up. It's like, why are people so enthralled in this dog and pony show? Well, I, I think it's because they, you know, they they're vicariously living through that moment that they. You know, as as Americans, we want we want the big tough guy. I mean, we want to vote for the big tough guy. Yeah. Whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, it's really irrelevant. But you know, we want to vote for the big tough guy. And so, what's happened over time is that the 
political discourse in this country has has degraded. Mm-hmm. And so where it used to be that, you know, they could disagree, but they would find common ground and just make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Now they're like, I disagree with you, so I just will not talk to you. And and you, you see these comments. I mean, you know, the comments about Donald Trump's penis. I mean, right. I'm, I'm 40 years old. I, I saw I saw Ronald Reagan debate. You know, I, I've seen right. them all. Right. right. Everything from Jimmy Carter on, I've I've seen that debate. Right. I, I swear to God, I've never seen anybody in a debate talk about the size of, of somebody else's penis. That that just was <laughs> mind-boggling to me. I know, I know. You just got to crack up and you're going, okay, moving yeah. along. <laughs> and, 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 and the other thing that I found is that it used to be a long time ago that when a, a candidate, you know, candidates, they always lie. They always pander. Left, right, center, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're pandering for votes. They 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 recognize that you're never going to be a hundred percent aligned with them. Mm-hmm. So they're they're looking for you to be mostly aligned with them. Right. Right. They they want to get that kind of seventy five percent threshold where it's like, well, they're not perfect, but they're good enough. I'll vote for you. Right. You know. It just. But, yeah. I, I don't. I don't even think it's. Uh, we really have that much of a say when it comes to the presidential elections. Anyway, I think. Personally, I think it's all rigged to begin with. So it just well, we saw that we saw that with Gore. I mean that yeah. that was. I think I was in college when that happened, mm-hmm. and that that's when I really knew. You know, for me, my my odyssey into this world of pain started when I was about seven as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I I saw a bizarre object um, in front of my second story window. Mm-hmm. It was a. It was a bluish white light that just kind of hovered there, mm-hmm. and um, I really didn't understand what it was, or I, you know, I was scared out of my mind. And I was reading a choose your own adventure, and I, uh, I hid under the blanket, and I came back up, and it was still there. Mm-hmm. And I closed my eyes and opened them; it was still there. And so I finally worked up the nerve to run across the hall to go get my dad. Because, I mean, I'm seven. My dad's – I thought my dad was invincible. He was Mr. Right. the toughest guy in the world and the smartest right. guy in the world. And he still is. Mm-hmm. And uh, he might listen to this. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I said, Dad, you know, you were, you were in the military. You know, he had gone to Vietnam. I said, you were in yeah. the military. You know, you know what airplanes look like. My family – you know, has had people who were in the Air Force. Right. You know, you know what an airplane looks like, right? He goes, sure, of course I do. So, okay, come in and tell me what this thing is. So my dad had a had a military-issue baton, like a baton for a, a policeman. Yeah. So he pulls that thing out, and he's ready to go, walks into my room, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And I said, Dad, it was really there. I'm not lying to you. And he goes, and, you know, my father, I give him a lot of credit. He goes, you know what? I totally believe you. Mm-hmm. And and he he made a comment to me that I'll never forget. He said, "You know, there's some weird stuff out there." And so I needed to understand what I had seen. Mm-hmm. And the next day, uh, lucky for me, was a library day at my elementary school. And so back when elementary schools had libraries and library days and librarians, and um, I went and I I explained to the librarian. I said, "Hey, I saw this weird thing. I want to check out a book." And figure out what it was. And to her her credit, with total conventional thinking, she right. points me to the Dewey Decimal 
decimal card card thing and says, look up aircraft or airplanes. And I said, no, 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 this wasn't an airplane. This was something else. And she goes, oh. And I said, oh, what? And she goes, oh. What <laughs> what you're looking for is in, I still remember where it was. It's in the the other room in the left in the left hand corner at the bottom and she gave me exactly where it was located and i can still go there today if mm -hmm. i went to the school right and there were three books there was j allen hynek messengers of deception or j uh, jock valley messengers of deception j allen hynek's book on the mm -hmm. ufos and uh brad steiger mysteries of time and space and so i checked all three out and i'm like i'm i'm gonna get to the bottom of this shit i'm gonna find out what this thing was and so I check them out, and she goes, oh, you're checking those out. And I said, well, I want the answer. I'm a snotty seven-year-old. I'm like, I'm <laughs> going to find out what's going on. Right. And um, so I checked them out. I took them home. I could not really get into Valley or Heineck. It was just too dense for me. Yeah. But I read Brad Steiger's book cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And it, it really mind-warped me because the Steiger's book was not just about UFOs. It was about cryptids and time vortexes and you know space vortexes and ghosts and all kinds of esp and all this crazy stuff so at that point i was like oh they're really now i understand why she said oh they're really there's a lot more to this mm -hmm. so i spent a long time trying to understand the ufo thing i had pretty much excluded the cryptids cryptozoology you know bigfoot and the jersey devil and all that I kind of just, in my juvenile mind, just discounted that. I said, you know what? I'm going to figure this UFO thing out. At seven, I have the brain power to do it. I'm going to solve yeah. this problem. <laughs> J. Allen Hynek couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Jacques Valley couldn't do it. But damn it, I can. <laughs> you know. And so I read and read and read, and I made my mom take me to the bookstore, and I bought books and I mean, fairly sophisticated books, and I'm building up and building up, and year after year, and I'm building up. And in reading those books, I became a kind of true believer, right? And I, I at that point, every funky light in the sky was like, that's an alien, right? And and I did see some things that you would classify as a UFO. I mean, I, I saw hanging at about 20,000 feet over my parents' house. The Lazar Sportster model. I mean, I saw this thing. Mm -hmm. Just Google Lazar Sportster model. I saw that thing hanging at about 20,000 feet over my house. Right. Clear as a bell. Middle of the day, you know, I took And where the, was this again? Uh, this was in, in the Bay Area. Wow. And I was out walking the dog. And, um, you know, I had no idea who Bob Lazar was. This is before Bob Lazar ever came out. Bob Lazar came out and told a story about how he worked at this place called S4 back engineering UFOs. Well, he did that in 89, mm -hmm. right? This was way before then. This was like 85, 86 mm -hmm. when this happened. And, you know, I'm like, oh, it's a UFO. And at that point I was like, oh, it's a UFO. It's aliens. No big deal. Right. right. So I finished walking the dog and go back inside. But, you know, Year after year, I read more and more and more and more and more and more. And I, I got to the point where I was a true believer. Right. And and it wasn't really until I met my girlfriend uh, when I was in junior college mm -hmm. that I, you know, she's uh, she has a very skeptical mind. Right. And so she was like, why do you think everything's a UFO? I said, well, look, here, let me show you the book, you know. 
And she started to push back on me and say, well, prove it to prove they're aliens. And I said, well, I can't, you know, I can't prove a negative. I mean, you know, I can't prove to you they're aliens. They're not like landing on my lawn. And she says, you know, you've got to kind of look at this from a different point of view. Instead of just assuming that they're aliens, you've got to look at it and see, try to figure out what it really is. And, you know, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I, you know, I was kind of befuddled by this and well, okay, I guess they're not aliens. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had always been an avid reader of aerospace stuff and I had started, I was reading, you know, Jane's defense weekly and I was reading, um, air and space technology week and these other things. And I started to see these aircraft in these magazines that looked like what I saw, not the, the circle of light. I've never figured out what that was, but I started to see these, these objects, you know, that, that I had seen at night and I started to see them and I started to see these wedge shaped things and these saucer shaped things. And I started to realize, well, maybe they're not alien. Mm -hmm. Right. And over time, the more and more I saw, the more and more I realized that they're probably not alien. And I think that's that's where it's, it began, that once I realized and I could rationalize that these were not alien objects, then I needed to understand what they were. And once I needed to understand, because I, I need to rationalize, right? Right. Once I understood, once I convinced myself that they were not alien, then I, I had to go through a discovery process of what could they possibly be. And that kind of led to more conspiracies because conspiracies really are like a pit. It's like a hole <laughs> yeah. and you it's actually, I've always, I've always explained to people, it's more like a black hole that when you, there are parts of a black hole and there's this, there's this thing called a Schwarzschild uh, radius where you start to feel the gravitational effects of the black hole. It's kind of like that, that I had crossed that threshold and I was feeling more and more sucked into this idea that there are conspiracies. And, you know, as I read more, I was sucked more toward the event horizon. And once you get to the event horizon, you can't escape because the escape velocity is the speed of light. So you plunge down the black hole and you're ripped apart. Well, mm -hmm. I, as I approached the event horizon, I suddenly realized, oh, wait a minute, these aren't aliens. And that allowed me to back off. Right. But, you know, once... Once you start to try to figure out what they really are, then you're exposed to a ginormous number of different conspiracies, right? Because the the way that these things, these projects are kept secret are highly sophisticated. Well, yeah, and not only that, they're just uh, very compartmentalized as well. That's what I meant. That and, uh, and it's all intermixed, that the people... Yep who are involved in all these experimental aircraft, you know, you see these names over and over and over again, and, and they're all interlinked. And then you look up who these guys are, and then you find out things like the, the Council on Foreign Relations, because that, that VP at Lockheed is a member of the CFR. Mm -hmm. Then you go look at what the CFR is, and then, you know, that's another rabbit hole. And then you start to realize that all these things fit together. Right. You know. And so there's a lot of, I think a lot of times there are people that are sort of unwittingly a part of a large conspiracy without really knowing it. 
because they're involved maybe with a small section of something that's going on, and then somebody else is doing something, but it all fits together in a very systematic, synchronistic way. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. You know, I've always contended that 99.9% of the people involved in any given conspiracy have no idea that they're Mm -hmm. a member of it. And it's kind of analogous to, you know, you could have a guy who's a machinist, and, Mm -hmm. you know, he comes to work, and he's working for a little machine shop, and they give him a piece of metal and drill a hole in that. He goes, okay, and he drills a hole in it, and he gives it to his boss. And it turns out that that machine shop had a little tiny contract with another, another outfit. They took his you know, kind of sheet with a hole in it. They gave it to another guy, drill two more holes. Okay. Two more holes. And eventually it ends up in a triangular shaped drone. Right. Mm -hmm. And none of these guys have any idea what they're working on. It's only the guys at the very end that have to put all the components together and they compartmentalize it because as I said in the beginning, you know, it's very hard to keep a secret. You can't really functionally keep a secret with more than one person. Mm hmm. So, you know, inevitably the secret will come out however it happens. So, you know, they compartmentalize it to limit their liability. And then they spoon feed the public too, where they'll reveal a certain amount of a conspiracy that's, you know, they figure, well, it's open for public consumption and it's not going to really affect our bottom line. So we'll just kind of let a little bit out. And then we'll also throw in a little bit of disinformation, but they'll make it, they'll articulate it in such a way that it sounds very viable, you know, and uh, that's why I think people are so easily deceived, whoever it is, whether people believe in conspiracies or not. I think it's just human nature, like you were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. if you, you know, it's a lot easier to believe somebody who sounds very intelligent and, uh, you know, that sort of coupled with u- utilizing neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, you can make uh, people believe in all kinds of things. Well, you know, one of the classic examples of that is a program called the A-12. Mm-hmm. The A-12 was built by Lockheed Skunk Works. It was actually the predecessor to the SR-71, and they built it out at, at Groom Lake. And it was a, it was I think a little longer than an SR seventy one, and it was silver. And so this thing would take off and fly around, and people would see it, and they wouldn't really. It doesn't look like an airplane that they would have seen back in the in the seventies. And so they they were kind of confused as to what they were looking at. So what do they do? It's a UFO. It's aliens. Well, the CIA, who was sponsoring the program with Lockheed went back and said, you know what? Sure, it's aliens. And so they put in people into these UFO groups to say, hey, that's not a secret spy plane. That's an alien ship. And so they misidentified a lot of the A-12s as UFOs. And interestingly enough, at the same time, the KGB was actually inserting people into these groups because the groups were going skywatching, and they wanted to have the the KGB agent go along with the skywatch to see if they could ferret out new and experimental aircraft because the, you know, the Russians at that time, the Soviets, they didn't believe that they were UFOs. They thought they were experimental planes. Right. So they would send in KGB operatives. And so in one room, you've got CIA guys telling, Oh yeah, it's a UFO. And you've got KGB guys going, yeah, it's a UFO. Uh huh. You know, so it it was a very interesting (laughs) dynamic, Mm -hmm. but another classic example 
of how this all works is that there was a guy uh it's it, it's probably it's a long story so it's probably better suited for a its own episode but in brief there was a guy his name is Bob Oshler and he was recruited into a program called Cosmic Journey and it was supposed to be a traveling this the the whole disclosure thing and he was supposed to uh he was supposed to participate in this program he had worked at NASA he was a mission specialist and they thought his knowledge of that and his interest in UFOs that he would be a good guy to kind of consult on it and he was having conversations with this guy named Bobby Ray Inman who was a former head of the CIA he was an admiral in the navy had been mm-hmm. And retired into the CIA. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> right, and and so Oshler kind of thought to himself, "Wait a minute, this is getting kind of funky." You know, these things that we're talking about. So he started recording the phone calls, and he's got these recordings of him and him and Inman talking about this road show to expose Roswell, and they have these, you know, these eighteen uh, wheeler trucks that with frozen alien bodies and tanks and you know, wreckage and the the famous I-beam with the hieroglyphics and all this stuff. And eventually, Oshler decided to go public. And I, I think he went up, he went public on sightings of all the shows to do it on. I love that show. But he, he went public on there. He played the tapes of Inman, nailed, I mean, it, I mean, it was a slam dunk. You know, he's got Inman on the tape saying, yeah, UFOs are real, you know. And so somebody in the hierarchy decided that it was time to, to discredit him. So somebody sent him a manila envelope from Canada uh, with the name Guardian on it, and it was a, inside there was a VHS tape, tells you when this happened, and he played it, and it looked like a bunch of uh, RCMP Mounties uh, surrounding this, this thing that looked like a UFO that was landing. So, of course, Oshler goes and says, hey, I got something new to show you guys, and kind of breaks that one wide open, and then, then there's just like a torrent, just a a torrent assaulting the man mm-hmm. from every angle, just completely discrediting the poor guy. And, you know, and it turns out that it was a helicopter and they had the flight logs and, you know, the RCMP, you know, produced all the documentation that it was a RCMP thing. And this helicopter had landed in a field and Oshler vanished. Mm. So, you know, the, this, this kind of, neuro-linguistic programming, once Oshler had, had kind of exposed the cosmic journey thing, then, you know, they, the machine set about to, to take him apart and they, they use the, the kind of authoritative words and authoritative language to just rip this guy apart. So, you know, you see it all the time. And, and the one thing that, that I should point out is that in, in disinformation, which Mm -hmm. is spread constantly, I mean, there, right. are, there are entire TV networks that are pretty much devoted to it at this point. Mm-hmm. There's a thing called the golden thread. And so the golden thread is absolutely true. So if you look at the very core of the disinformation, it is absolutely true. That's the golden thread. That's the thing where you grasp onto it, you can rationalize it and say, oh, this thing is real. I mm-hmm. believe this. And then the details that they wrap around it are utter BS. But the the golden thread itself is very, very true. So what you do is in disinformation, the game that you play is trying to use a, you know, use a scalpel and to cut away the layers of disinformation. And the way you do that is that you, you look at the details and you, you seek out the details to see if it's true. 
Mm-hmm. And if it's not true, you discard it. And eventually, when you like peeling an onion, when you get to the very center, then that is the golden thread. That little bit of information is true. The problem is, is that sometimes these onions are massive. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, and then another aspect of conspiracy research that uh, I learned from uh, looking at some of May Brussels' old writings and uh, her old uh, radio shows. May Brussel, by the way, is considered the queen of conspiracy research. She was uh, uh, a wealthy Jewish housewife in the early '60s, and JFK was assassinated. And after that, her whole life changed and. She devoted her whole life into um, understanding the JFK assassination and who was involved. And, man, it got down to the Nazis and to all these Bob. Uh, Bob, the CIA. And so she utilized some very interesting concepts to, like, cr- utilize cross-patterning through different sources and basically getting to the, the money trail once you establish – a money trail, then you could basically see who was pulling the strings. So um, I know we only have a few minutes left, uh, Olaf, but I just wanted to maybe touch upon a CIA document that talks about conspiracy theories and sort of how it was maybe uh, the conspiracy theory uh, phrase was formulated to discredit people who believe in conspiracies. You, You go, Ron Patton. Well, thank you very much. Hey, it was called a CIA document 1035-960. It was actually released in uh, 1976 through the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, the New York Times uh, basically put it out. And this was a directive which was especially significant because it outlines the CIA's concerns regarding the whole reputation of the American government, especially dealing with the Warren Commission report on the JFK assassination. And so the agency was very much interested in maintaining, you know, its own image and its role as it contributed information to the Warren investigation. So basically the memorandum lays out a detailed series of actions and techniques for countering and discrediting the claims of the conspiracy theorists so as to inhibit the circulation of such claims in other countries. And it says, for example, approaching friendly elite contacts, especially politicians and editors, to remind them of the Warren Commission's integrity and soundness should be prioritized. The charges of the critics are without serious foundation, the document reads, and further speculative discussion only plays into the hands of the communist opposition you know there we go the dialectic right absolutely the agency also directed its members to employ propaganda assets to negate and refute the attacks of the critics book reviews and feature articles are particularly appropriate for this purpose so the cia document 1035-960 further delineates specific techniques for countering conspiratorial arguments centering on the Warren Commission's findings. Such responses and their coupling with the pejorative label have been routinely wheeled out in various guises by corporate media outlets, commentators, political leaders to this day against those demanding truth and accountability about momentous 
public events. So those momentous public events could be, you know, anything from <clears throat> the Oklahoma City bombing to 9-11 to Sandy Hook uh, and a lot of these very traumatic events. And, you know, we'll get into those another time and how they really created uh, this mass trauma that has affected the uh, American psyche for over 60 years now. You know, you know, I wanted to put in something as well. You know, I've I've been at this for a long time, and I I do firmly believe that that you know you were mentioning May Brussel and the the JFK assassination. I think that there were two climactic events that really kind of drove modern conspiracy theory as we understand it today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first, I think the first was really the assassination of JFK. Right. In the United States and the Western world, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated, I think once everybody got past the notion that Kennedy had been assassinated, that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people really started to wonder, especially given, you know, their general distrust or dislike of, of uh, LBJ. I think a lot of people in, in the believed that there was a conspiracy to kill him, that it wasn't his assassination was a fundamental conspiracy and that it wasn't the, the lone crackpot gunman. And I think that that, especially given that a lot, you know, that we had the Vietnam war going on at the time, I think that that kind of catalyzed, catalyzed in the American public, this and the Western world, that this notion that conspiracies happen and conspiracies mm-hmm. are real because if you walk down the street and ask anybody who's over 40 about JFK they're going to go well the CIA did it or you know Castro did it or the mob did it it's never Lee Harvey Oswald right and in the Soviet Union i think that they the Warsaw Pact i think that they they had a similar kind of event that when when Yuri Gagarin died he was flying a plane and and it crashed when Yuri Gagarin died i think a lot of soviets were like oh that, you know, the Soviets, I think, were much more primed to the conspiracies because they, they lived in an oppressive totalitarian regime. Mm-hmm. But I think that it really catalyzed for them when Gagarin died. Because, you know, I, I talked to two two guys. Both of them were, in you know, were Russians and they lived in during that time. And the one guy, he said, oh, well, Gagarin died because he was a drunk and he crashed his plane. Mm-hmm. And the other guy said who was also there and they were friends said, no, the KGB killed him. And so, you know, the, the, the death of Gagarin and the death of JFK, I think both were catalyzing factors in pushing forward the notion of, of conspiracy theory. Now, if you go to somebody who's under 40 or 50 and talk about Gagarin or these things, then, you know, it's not, it's not relevant. It's not relevant to them, but to the older generation who were our teachers and who were our politicians and who were, you know, those people that we looked up to, grandma and grandpa, telling you stories by the campfire, sitting out on the porch with a lemonade, right? Yeah. They believed it. And so that changed their worldview. Mm-hmm. And that, that change in their worldview opened up conspiracies to the masses. And then after the the events of the 80s and the 90s, I mean, there were a lot of conspiracy stuff that happened in the 80s, even more in the 90s. When you get done with the black helicopters over America and, and, you know, 
mass mind control and and some of these other things there were a lot of things that were emerging during that time about the syphilis experiments and a lot of these covert experiments that were taking place upon the u.s public mm-hmm. then suddenly you have things like the x-files that come along right you know and and there was a predecessor to the x-files called kolchak the night stalker it was more about crypto. i remember that yeah. yeah it was more about crypto stuff cryptozoology but stuff. the 90s were just inundated with uh, conspiracy conspiracy shows like everywhere. I mean, I, I actually honestly, I, I like Dark Skies better than I did the X Files because it, it had some historical context to it. And uh, then there was a show called uh, The Pretender, right? Which I I could really <laughs> relate to because I knew a lot of uh, MK Ultra survivors who talked about being at a special type of school, like a gifted kid's school when right. they were younger. And so that's what that reminded me of. And then there was uh, Nowhere Man. So yeah. it was just a very interesting time back in the 90s. And I think part of it was uh, spun from all those events like uh, Waco and Oklahoma City bombing and uh, Ruby the, Ridge. The rise of the right? militia movement. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. So I think, you know, you've got you've got people that were coming into power in the 90s and these people were they had experienced the Kennedy assassination. They had experienced the Cuban Missile Crisis. They had experienced all these events, mutually assured destruction. Right. Mm -hmm. Vietnam, you know, I think it was in the 90s that they exposed the Tonkin Gulf incident, the thing that supposedly started Vietnam. You know, they exposed that as a fraud. They, they actually talked about the liberty and a whole lot of other things, USS Liberty. And so, you know, in the 90s, these people came into power, and suddenly these people were in control of television. And suddenly, you know, we start to see this conspiracy programming. There's mm-hmm. sightings. You know, sightings was on. Art Bell was huge. Right. You know, I remember in the late 90s, you know, driving home. I, w- I lived in Davis at the time. I was going to, to Davis. And... You know, this is the Hale-Bopp thing. And I remember vividly driving on this lonely freeway before there were lights on the freeway and, and you know, listening to Art Bell, you know, broadcasting from the Kingdom of Nye and talking about Hale-Bopp. And I'm looking up and Hale-Bopp is in the sky. And, you know, it was a whole era, you know, listening to Ground Zero. I mean, it was a whole era that, that happened in the in the mid to late 90s that, you know, that just kind of exploded on the scene. I mean, even Paranoia, our our favorite magazine, you know, it was founded in the early 90s. So That's very true. Back yeah. in 1992, blowing mine since 1992. <laughs> we have another t-shirt coming, by the way, a bitch slapping the sheeple since 92. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll be nice. I'm going to give one to my woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so so, you know, that's all I got. Well, I think it's been a great show so far. Um, so what do we have in store for some upcoming shows? Well, uh, for me, I want to talk about the Secret Space Program, my favorite topic, uh, Project Lunix, mm-hmm. Project Horizon, Moon Bases. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Project Azorian, another of my favorites. It's got everything in it. Howard Hughes, Russian submarines, all kinds of nutty stuff. But you know, one of the other things that, that we want to do is that, you know, if there's a subject that, that's near and dear to your heart, uh, 
let us know. You know, we're going to try as hard as we can to make these about once a week on Sundays. And uh, we'll get them out maybe a day or two after that. But, you know, just send us a message on Twitter. Uh, it's Paranoia Mag on Twitter. Or you can catch us on Facebook at Paranoia Magazine uh, on Facebook. Or you can find us at ParanoiaMagazine.com, ParanoiaPublishing.com. Uh, you know, send us what you want to know about. Maybe you heard a term that somebody threw out there during a a, a Ground Zero uh, episode or the Higher Side Chats or any of the other, Gramerica, you know, some of our favorites, the Kev Baker Show. Um, maybe you heard something on one of those that, that you're interested in and they didn't really kind of get into it. Um, send us a message. We'll We'll discuss it and in some cases debate it because, you know, I want to stress that Ron and I don't always agree, uh, but you know, if there are two sides, we'll definitely give you two sides. <laughs> yeah. But you usually submit after a while because, you know, <laughs> for, you because the struggle's just too much for you at times. It's the, it. it's the neuro linguistic. I'm the alpha Ron. dog here. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> See, I heard even more laughing. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fan club here. Hey, so Ron, <laughs> so what kinds of stuff do you want to do? Um, I think, you know, what I'm interested in is mind control is sort of my area of research that I've been involved with for a number of years. Uh, but sort of the, the current um, aspect or the current part of mind control, sort of like MKUltra 2.0, sort of entailing uh, electronic harassment and even uh, the utilization of uh, uh, bio telemetric type of devices and uh, even getting into transhumanism now. Um, so I don't even know if it's appropriate to say mind control because it's, it's more like uh, system. Control. Oh, yeah. <laughs> system mind control or s system control or basically their desire to control our, not only our minds, but our bodies and our, our soul, if you will. So I think that's something that I'd, I'd really like to explore further in some upcoming episodes of Paranoia. Yes. All right. So there you go. That's the first one. Hopefully, you know, you enjoyed it. And it was, I had a lot of fun making it. Ron, <laughs> I hope you did too. Oh, yeah. It was a blast, brother. It was a blast. But, uh, yeah. And then also we have uh, an upcoming issue of Paranoia, The Conspiracy Reader. Coming out soon, right? Coming out very soon, probably in the next couple of weeks. We've got some really awesome stuff. Uh, Jay Dyer did an uh, amazing article on uh, analyzing the Eyes Wide Shut. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim Schwartz is going to be writing an article. Uh, I think you got a couple people writing articles. Yeah, Gon Shimora has a really excellent article coming out, which I think a lot of people will just be blown away by. Yeah, he's a young up up and coming uh podcaster and uh and uh researcher. Um and then a good friend of mine, Kevin Patton, who we both met at Occupy Bohemian Grove. Yes. Is uh has a very extensive article called uh Bohemian Battles. Yep. And uh we'll also have a uh, report on the uh uh electro electronic harassment symposium that occurred in uh uh, Europe, and that'll also be in the upcoming issue. And uh, we'll also have something out um, 
from our good friend Fratter X. That's right. It's, That's uh, coming too. Called the Ghost of the Nephilim. And of course, our good friend Clyde Lewis from Bound Zero will also have an article. Uh, we'll right. still have to kind of figure out which one to uh, procure. But uh, yeah, it's just going to be. It's going to be. A potpourri. Sort of like old, it's a potpourri of weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. But I think. Um, I mean, and that's how paranoia originally came out, you know, back in the early 90s. It was just sort of like all different angles. And, you know, the thing I appreciated uh, when I was uh, writing for Paranoia back in the 90s is that they would take contrasting articles or people with different opinions that write about the same subject. Like, for instance, I wrote an article called Demons and Aliens Clothing, uh, back in 96 that had to do more with the uh, spiritual implications of the UFO alien phenomena. And then uh, in the same issue, there was a guy by the name of William Line, L-Y-N-E, who uh, is author of a, a book called um, Space Aliens from the Pentagon. And the title of his article was called No Aliens, Just Assholes. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome article, by the way. Yeah, but so ba but basically he came from uh, an atheist point of view. So he came at it from different angles, but you know what? People loved it because it was like, oh, wow, you guys are talking about the same thing, but from a different perspective. And so I think that's what really sets Paranoia uh, magazine apart from other types of publications is we're not afraid to kind of venture out and have differences of opinion. And, and you know, we're willing to give people a voice. You know, we've published articles about the flat earth and about everything in between. You know, we, we think that uh, all people have a right to get their point across. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we try to put it out there and let, let the reader decide. Yep. It's a good ride, brother. That's right. All right. Well, I'm going to call it quits on this one. Alrighty. So in the immortal words of George Carlin, uh, be excellent to one another. And uh, we'll wrap this one up and uh, see you next week. Take good care and keep the faith, brother. Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton. Sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. ParanoiaMagazine.com Intro theme The Guide was composed by Scott Moon ScottMoon.net Outro theme Fighting Trousers is by Professor Elemental ProfessorElemental.com Voiceover written and performed by Mr. Lobo host of Cinema Insomnia Watch new episodes on OSI 74. Visit us at osi74.com. We are resuming control. For now. <laughs>